find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you. How do you think the world will end? Some people think that it will end with oceans covering the land because of of global warming. There'll be nowhere to live uh, anymore. Uh, Other people think that that hydron collider thingy uh, in Switzerland will somehow accidentally create uh, a black hole and sort of suck the whole world in. Others think it will end when Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin, whichever one is madder, uh, presses the big red button uh, and starts a nuclear war. Others think it will be an epic battle. Uh, in the Middle East, the battle between angels and demons, good versus evil. The devil and his forces, and, and God is his out on the plains of Megiddo, uh, near Jerusalem, Armageddon, the last battle. What do you think? How will the world end? Well, Joel here presents us with the end of the world, the day of the Lord. How will the world end? Well, Joel tells us. He's already begun to tell us in the previous chapter. We've already learned that God's big plan for the end is to restore his people. To pour out his spirit on them and send them into all the world for spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. And in the face of the end, that is God's rescue plan for the world. As his people go out and tell people what is to come. You and me taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the end is coming everywhere. And Joel here tells us what it will be like for the whole world. The passage begins with an assurance that God will gather the nations together. Have a look at verses 2 to 8. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment. We'll just uh, leave it there uh, for the moment. Usually gathering in the Bible is a blessing. So the the church itself is a gathering. That's what the word means. And scattering in the Bible is normally a curse. But here the nations are gathered together. But they're gathered together for judgment. They're gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's what we're told uh, there in verse 2. Now there's lots of ink been spilled about this valley uh, part of the problem is that basically there's no credible record of a valley of Jehoshaphat existing. That's the problem. Some have suggested locations, but really the location is not the point. This is a gathering of all the world, all the nations of the world. There is, if you think about it, no literal valley that could hold seven billion people, is there? There'd be billions and pe- billions of people there. The name Jehoshaphat means the Lord has judged so if you think about it what it's really telling us it's giving us that name to show us that this is the valley of God's certain judgment this is judgment valley on judgment day that's what it's talking about with Jehoshaphat so we don't need to worry about where it is the point is what is happening there God is judging and God here is judge and prosecution all rolled into one God's people have been mistreated by the nations, and now it's time for retribution. That's the title of our first section. And God reads off the charge sheet against the nations, uh, at the second part of verse 2. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, 
and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. They have scattered his people among the nations. Now, of course, God did that at various points, didn't he? With, by various nations. But here it seems they've gone a step further. Not only are they scattered among the nations, but actually, if you look at the end of verse 5, they're then selling them on. Uh, sorry, verse 6. Selling them on to other nations to get them away from their own borders. They're making it harder uh, for them to come back. They don't want the Jews to return to their land. They don't want the Jews in their own country. And they sell them on. See, anti-Semitism is not a new thing. It's abhorrent, but it's been around a long time. The nations are selling them on because they don't want them anywhere near them. That would make it harder for them to get home. And even in Jesus' day, there were Jews who were still scattered from this scattering it's talking about. uh, Way across the world among the nations. We saw it last time with Pentecost as all those people gathered from all those different nations. Well, how did they get there? Well, people sold them on to those different nations. So they've scattered God's people. They divided up my land, says God. Now again, this happens at various points in Israel's history. God divides the land for them. But it's not for the nations to divide up his land. God divides his land up for his people. It's him who allots it to them. But now the nations are dividing it up for themselves. It'd be a bit like if you ever had that situation at school where a bully stole your lunch. You know, a group of bullies stole your lunch. And they start to say, well, you can have the apple, you can have the uh, chocolate biscuit, you can have the sandwich. And they sort of divide up your lunch. Now, you're allowed to divide up your lunch if you want to, but it's not for someone else to do. They've taken over the land, and now they're splitting it up amongst themselves. It's not their land to divide up, yet that's what they're doing. The next charge is that they've cast lots for my people. This is a reference to enforced slavery. Quite common in the old world, it would be done by kidnapping defenceless people or taking slaves as spoils of war. But here there's a callousness to what they're doing. They're casting lots. It's like the nations are playing rock, paper, scissors for for work out who gets which slave. It's demeaning. It's humiliating. It's treating people as worthless, as though you could just, you know... Divide them up as you like. And that's backed up by what's followed, isn't it? They have traded a boy for a prostitute. They have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Think about this for a second. I don't expect you to know the going rate for a prostitute. But an average bottle of plonk is not exactly a luxury item. This is what people drank nearly every day. Don't think French champagne here when it talks about a bottle of wine. Think Blue Nun or Liebfrimilch. You know, the stuff that you look at, you know, the cheapest possible bottle you can buy. They're trading a girl for a bottle of wine. Wine that they've then just drunk. Almost seemingly just, you know, grab it, drink it. What a low value to apply to the life of a young girl. They've traded a boy for a prostitute. The future of a boy, the life of a boy, for a few minutes of pleasure. What blatant disregard of the sanctity of human life. What a disgusting way to act. 
And notice they're not doing this for bread. It's not that they're hungry. They're doing it for booze and prostitutes. The lives of God's people for alcohol and illicit sex. And this is the way that they're treating God's people. This is the charge sheet that God is bringing against the nations. And it seems by treating them in this way, in their heads at least, they're trying to get their own back on God. Have a look at verses 5 to 8. For you have carried my silver and my gold. You have carried my treasure into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir up from the place to which you have been sold. Uh, sold sorry, start at verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head speedily and swiftly. For you have taken my riches and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. They think they're somehow paying God back. They're somehow angry at God and they're trying to take it out on his people. I've always thought it strange that some atheists claim not to believe in God and yet somehow rejoice when they think they've got one over on him. They seem to compel to beat a God that they claim doesn't exist. They don't believe in God but they hate him at the same time. Here it's as though the nations around are trying to get their own back on God. It's not their God, but they somehow feel that they can attack him. Tyre and Sidon are there to the north in modern day Lebanon. Philistia to the south, roughly the area of the Gaza Strip. And at one time those places would have been under the control or influence of Israel in some way. But now they were her enemies. And in their heads it's payback time. God had caused them to be oppressed, so now it was time for them to oppress God's people. But God will not take their payment. He will return it on their heads. Because they are no innocent party in this. That's what they're trying to make out, isn't it? They're no victim in this scenario. They have plundered God's people. They have sold them into slavery. Their sinful racism has caused them to deport the Jews to Greece as slaves. Just so they don't have to have them living anywhere near their borders. How will God repay these nations? Well the people who sold Judah will be sold to Judah. There's a sort of poetic justice to it isn't it? Only this is real justice. The people who sold them to Greece, well they'll be sold to Sheba, to Yemen if you like. That's roughly where Sheba was. It was almost viewed as the edge of the world to the south. It would be like selling them to Timbuktu. If they would be so arrogant to send his people to one end of the world, well, he will send them to another. Recompense will come. Retribution will come. But not just retribution, a reckoning, a judgment, a verdict on the whole of mankind. And that's our second point, a reckoning. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. 
Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Well, now at least we get our great battle. Or at least it certainly looks like it. All the nations of the earth are gathered to fight. And this is total war. There's a reversal here of Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, which I've just put on the back of your notice sheets, but there's no need to read them. It's, it's a flipping round of that image of universal peace. In those quotes, the, the, the tools of war are to be turned into tools of agriculture. But here, the tools of the field are to be turned into weapons of war. If Isaiah and Micah were supposed to be images of universal peace... Well, here is an image of universal war, all-out war. And even the weakest, at the end of verse 10, are to become warriors. Everybody's involved in this fight. Everyone is to be at war in this battle. Who are they fighting with? God. That's who they gathered to fight. What we have pictured here is the world at war with God. Now that shouldn't surprise us in a way. It's not a new idea, is it really? It's as old as Psalm 2. Psalm 2-2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's the world at war with God. It's as old as Genesis 3. As mankind takes its stand against God. And here, at the end, right at the end of the world... Mankind is still at war with his maker and his anointed. Now God goads them to gather them together, to take their stand together against him. Gather for war, prepare for war. It's almost, I think in Yorkshire we probably say something like, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. That's basically what he's saying. If you think you can beat me, come together. And so the people gather for war. But there's to be no battle. There's to be no contest. How could anyone be so foolish to think they could take on the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth, the giver of their very breath, and win? You see, they're not gathered for battle, even though that's what they think they're doing. They're gathered for judgment. This is not a battlefield that he's calling them to. It's a courtroom. They've not been summoned for a fight. They've been summoned for an execution. And what follows is very graphic imagery of God's judgment. So hold on to your stomachs as we read this through verses 12 and 13. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread For the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now, as I said, this is quite graphic imagery. The field of troops gathered together against God are pictured as a ripe harvest field. Not for evangelism, like we often think of the harvest field, but execution. 
God gives the command for the sickle to be swung and the people are chopped down where they stand. The image then becomes wine production. Grapes would be put into a vat and would be trod down to extract the grape juice for making wine. Well, the valley here of Jehoshaphat becomes a vat and they are the grapes. The command is given by God to tread. And so full of blood will the valley be that the vat will spill over, it will overflow. So great is the evil on the earth that the judgment will will be shocking. Is it any wonder people sometimes have a problem with the God of the Old Testament? It seems so violent, doesn't it? It seems so non-PC. Can we write this off as just belonging to a different age? Isn't this the wrathful God of the Old Testament, whereas we have the loving God of the New Testament? Except that we find exactly the same image in the New Testament. If you want to turn up Revelation 14, it's the last book of the Bible. I've got the page numbers up on the screen. Revelation 14, 14 to 20. See if you can pick up the imagery from Joel in these verses. Revelation 14, 14 to 20. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth. And threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for uh, 1,600 stadia. That's a lot of miles if you're not familiar with stadia. All the way up to a horse's bridle. So we get the same imagery as we do in Joel in the New Testament as well. If anything, this is more graphic than what we get in the book of Joel. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is not Old Testament versus New Testament. It's not that God changes between the Testaments. Judgment on sin is horrific in both the Old and New Testament. Because sin is horrific, isn't it? We're involved in all-out war against God. That's the picture that we're given. And that's whether we're on the front line fighting openly or whether we're the admin guy who sort of reorders the uniforms and stationery, all of us are involved in that war effort. All of us, naturally speaking, are at war against God. All of us are tainted by this hostility to God and to his Christ. And when you think about it that way, doesn't this begin to make sense? God is not the aggressor here. We are. God is not the one declaring war We are. All God does here is gather us here together for judgment 
and give us what we deserve, a reckoning, a just judgment, a just verdict. When is this? Well, back in Joel, we're told when this will happen. Verses 14 to 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. When is this? It's the day of the Lord. What else would we expect from Joel at this point? We've heard it every week, haven't we? But as with last time, the day of the Lord, in one sense, has already begun. In the death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. He has already poured out his spirit, as was predicted in the last days in the previous chapter. Indeed, even the fulfilment of this in one way began at Jesus' first coming. So Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 28 on back of your sheets. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the apostles here see this great stand of the nations against God taking place as the Roman authorities and Herod, the Edomite king, put over them, conspire to kill the Lord Jesus. The nations, in one sense, took their stand against God as they nailed his anointed, Jesus, to the cross. They took their stand and they lost in dramatic fashion. The passage there tells us, doesn't it, that they only did what God had planned and predestined to take place. They were playing right into God's hand as their attempt to thwart God's plan ended up in fulfilling God's plan. Could you imagine the debrief in Satan's headquarters after the cross? Could you imagine the HQ of the World Against God coalition on hearing that their plan to overthrow God and his people actually resulted in the salvation of his people? I believe this is what the kids nowadays are calling an epic fail. The guilty verdict due to his people falls on Jesus. And the guilty verdict of the nations is sealed. Love incarnate came into the world and the world crucified him. And now they must gather in verdict valley. That's another way of translating valley of decision. The world has gathered against God and is anointed the Christ and his saints, and now the world must face the consequences of rebellion against God, the winepress of God's wrath, what Jesus refers to as hell. Now remember, this is a mere picture of hell. The reality is far worse. So there will be no battle, no excuses, and no escape. There will be a reckoning for the world. 
What can we take from that? Well, judgment is real. Escape on our part is impossible. There will be no talking God round. There'll be no bargaining. There'll be no fighting. The verdict will be pronounced and the sentence passed and there will be no defence. I tell this to you not to be glib, but to warn you. This will happen. Judgment is coming. That day will take place. You need to be prepared for that day. How can you be prepared? Well, that's our last point, more briefly. Refuge. Verses 1 and 16. Let me read the second half of verse 16 to you. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. There's a flip side to all this. In fact, it's part of what God said he was doing in verse 1. Do you remember right back in verse 1? For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Actually, what is God doing here? He's restoring the fortunes of his people by removing their enemies. You see, there can never be final peace for God's people while God's enemies are still active. While the aggressors are still there, there'll never be peace and restoration for his people. The problem is that we naturally set ourselves up as God's enemies. We set ourselves up against God. We work for the other side. If God is to judge as he does here, then wouldn't he have to condemn his own people too? Because actually, don't we go along with these things? What escape is there from the wrath of God then? Well, the answer that it gives us here is God himself. He is our refuge from his own wrath. He is the fortress against his own attack. You see, God cannot just switch off his wrath against sin. To do so would be to deny his own character, his own justice. But he can provide a refuge from it. In the Old Testament, there's a wonderful picture of this, as he provides cities of refuge, where people guilty of manslaughter could go and find safety. Well, God himself, Christ himself, is our city of refuge, our fortress, our hiding place. He is that safe place because he has taken the wrath on himself. So it's not that God has switched it off, but the father and his son agreed that God would redirect his wrath onto the son. Like a lightning rod, Jesus took that awesome destructive power of God's wrath in order to provide safety for us. God himself is our refuge. So if you want to escape that judgment, if you want to escape God's wrath, turn to Christ and Christ alone. Your good works, your religious observances will be worth nothing on that day. Thrown out of the court as irrelevant as the sickle comes down. Trust in him alone. Find refuge in him alone. And if you have found refuge in him this morning... Don't go making paper castles. That's the best way I can think of it, describing it. Here we are in God's fortress, in God's armour, secure in Christ. And what do we do? We try and make our own refuges out of paper. 
We sit secure in him and yet we fool ourselves that we need more. We make ourselves castles out of paper. Our works, our zeal, our daily quiet time, our obedience, our church attendance. And we weep and we wail as our paper castles fall down. Because they do, don't they? As though we're somehow in real danger. But brothers and sisters, God is our refuge, not our paper castles. If we are found in him, then we have nothing to fear. There's no need to fear and fret. Just make sure that you are in him. Because those paper castles will not stand on God's terrible day of judgment. If you're outside of him and try and build those own thing, your own things, they will not last. So how do you think the world will end? Well, God will do it. So don't worry too much about global warming or black holes. They won't end our species. Might be best to avoid them, though. Don't get me wrong. But they will not end our world. God will call time on this world. And he could do it any day. And if God is your fortress, you will be safe. Despite your own fears, despite your own insecurities, you will be safe. But if God is not your fortress, then on that day there will be nowhere you can go. On that last day it will be too late. So find refuge in him now. Put your trust in Jesus and him alone. That stronghold from the storm, that refuge from God's wrath, the only way that anyone will survive. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a just God. Father, thank you that you care about the injustices that we see in our world. But Father, we admit that so often we are the cause of those injustices. We are the cause of those sufferings. Father, we don't deserve your mercy. Father, we don't deserve your favour. But Father, because of Christ, we ask that you would show us your mercy, show us your favour. Help us to know that if we are trusting in Christ, we are secure in you. Help us not to fret. Help us not to fear that day. But Father, pray that we would be Um, securing you and secure in telling others, calling others to find refuge in you, that great fortress. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.